I'm Damien the DM from Adventures in Aurelia, a collaborative storytelling experience told through a game of Dungeons and Dragons, part of the Gunna Geek Network, just like the show you're checking out now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other epically geeky shows at GunnaGeekNetwork.com. Welcome to Play Comics, where once again we are here looking at a video game based on a comic property and how well it represents that source material. As always, I'm Chris, and today I have Corey Bird here to look at something that I did not realize was a comic-based thing until way, way too late. Otherwise, we would have covered it back when we were looking at NES things proper. Corey is here to look with me at Golgo 13 top secret episode. Corey, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm excited. Well, I'm disappointed that I didn't realize this one should have been covered before, but I'm excited that we can get that fixed up now. <laughs> no problem. So what was it that drew you to Golgo 13 as a topic to come talk to me about? Well, I've already heard of Google 13 for quite a while on the NES. Um, I was vaguely familiar that there was a manga, but I wasn't 100% sure because it kind of mixed in with Lupin, uh, Lupin the Third, um, of the knowledge of it. So I didn't really know that it, Google 13 had its own, but I've always seen like pictures and uh, you know screenshots and stuff like that of Golgo 13 but I've never really played it before um, until recently as far as the game side of things that's how it is for me um, I also have the embarrassing thing of I own this game and I hadn't played it before for much of anything <laughs> it had to have been just a pile of games I got from somebody at the flea market and just yeah. never thought to put it in yeah yeah, unless you're like a fan of that series, um, I'm pretty sure it's pretty obscure in America. I mean, uh, the Japanese probably know a lot more about it than we do because it's a historical, uh, you know, part of the media, and manga plays a strong part in Japanese culture and and whatnot. So, I think that they definitely would be more familiar with it than we would be. So, I think that's why this just didn't jump up and grab the American audience because I mean the manga goes back to I believe the 60s um, so that during our time period you know during the you know, 80s um, and 90s we wouldn't have been too familiar with it because it wasn't really geared towards our market yeah the manga run on this started in October 1968 and has been going basically straight since then for 206 volumes i've wow. seen a lot of people saying that this is the thing with the 
highest number of volumes for a single manga series, including the Guinness World Records book. Wow. Pretty sure that they are the authority on things that are a record. Right. Yeah, and if it's going for 206 volumes, it has to be doing something right for people to like it, for it to keep getting made. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it's just, it must be more on, because I, you know, I have a friend in Japan and I asked him about it and he was like, yeah, go with 13. I don't know about that. He was like, what are you, what are you checking that out for? Uh, and I just let him know that I was going to do it for a podcast and whatnot. And so he sent me some information about it. And, um, you know, I looked at a little bit of the manga. I looked, you know, played the game, uh, looked at a documentary with Saito Sun, the creator. Um, and it was it was really cool. It's a, it's a really cool take on the spy genre. And, um, you know, it's definitely got the 007 vibe to it. And, um, you know, it's definitely more violent and sexual than it is with the, uh, you know, the 007 that we've seen is definitely uncut compared to 007. I mean, it's violence and sexuality in the 007 stuff, but this one is like, you know, in your face because the Japanese doesn't have, they don't have the the uh, the limits that we have when it comes to those type of things. Knowing that you have that friend in Japan that you can get information from for this made me really excited <laughs> because I don't have that and everything that I can find about it it's always got that uh, English language bias to it because I can't read Japanese at all so mm. if nothing mm. else I've got whoever translated it put in maybe not on purpose but getting that little bias in there on how they're choosing to translate things because Japanese and English, I tr just like every other giant nerd at, at one point in the past, I decided I wanted to learn Japanese and I got far enough into it to realize that it was not going to click in my brain <laughs> just because the structure and everything is so different. Yeah, I, I, I'm same thing here. I've tried Japanese. Uh, I do still want to keep going, but. I, I was speaking it out loud in my house and so they were making fun of me so I kind of get felt embarrassed so I just stopped doing it um, and then I tried to speak just a tiny bit to my friend and he he started talking back to me in it and I was like oh, okay okay I'm gonna stop right there because I, I have I kind of know what you said but you know you said it in a way that I did not learn it because you know he knows it fluently so me learning it you know, hearing him say it like that, I was kind of like, okay, let me step back. I'm not even going to try <laughs> to have a conversation here. You can recognize maybe five words when we're watching anime and at least two or three of those are character names for whatever we're watching. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, Baka is a big one that I've I've heard a lot, which is idiot, and um, that that one's used a lot in anime. Um, and then um, Nani, Nani is like what? You know, that's another thing that's being said a lot in modern um, animes. Which is uh, Nani is like yeah, I just said it, but yeah, that's what it is. It's kind of like huh? 
Well, that's going to push me up to seven things now. <laughs> so, yo, I mean, I looked at the documentary with Saito-san. It was really cool. Um, you know, his process of drawing um, the mangas was really cool because he... As an artist myself, you know, we kind of do a skeleton in the beginning of drawing a character or characters or the world that we're in and then go in with the inks and, um, you know, colors or details or whatever, which is rendering. Um, He doesn't do a full sketch out. He just does like a even less than drawing in like eyes and nose and ears with the pencils. He'll just kind of like do the basic shape of the face and then go right in with the inks. And I thought that was fascinating because he's kind of like, I mean, he's been doing it for 47 years. So, I mean, well, he's he's gone now. He passed away. But um, when he was doing it, you know, he would draw like just just very blank, almost page with the pencils and then go right in with the inks. And then, of course, as years went by, I'm sure he uh, well on the documentary. I looked at it. He he had assistants who actually did the backgrounds and the lettering and everything but he would he would plan all that out for them and write down you know uh guidance on the sketches and the panels and everything but he himself said that everything about his character Google 13 um he did all of that himself you know he would draw Google every for, for every panel and every shot whereas his assistants uh, assistants would would draw everything else, uh, and he would plan out, like I said, the, the the word bubbles and the spaces and everything like that. As a as an artist, we usually do all of that ourselves. But I know with the Japanese culture, because they're on a shorter time frame than we are, because uh, they have weekly books and everything. And of course, as he got older, he had to get more people to help him out with that. Um, in the beginning, I don't know if he did everything himself, um, but I just think his drawing process was very, very cool and very different from what I'm used to. The entire idea of having a single person do the writing and the art is just fascinating to me. Like every time I hear about multiple people working on it outside of things like this where you have assistants doing pieces of it but like every time I hear about it by design being one person writing one person doing the art I always hear about it as being an outlier over there and I just think it's completely fascinating that you have manga and more western style comics getting to roughly the same end result but such a different path to get in there. And you mean the the the, the uh, difference between the American style and the Japanese style? Well, not even the art style with it, just the whole production style of having one person do the writing and that's all they're doing, and one person doing the art and that's all they're doing. And we certainly have people here who do both. Yeah. <laughs> um, a baby, right? Yeah. But <laughs> when you have somebody yeah. who does both here, it's seen as like 
it's the weird thing on this side of the world because oh look it's somebody who's doing everything that's so cool that they can do everything yeah and i i for my comic book uh tooth and nail i do everything uh, i'm doing uh visually I, i'm a visual storyteller so i tell everything with the pictures before i even put it in the words so you know, I don't have a script laid out in front of me because all the story is coming for me is all in my head already. And so when I draw it out, I'm drawing out the actual story going along. And then in my head, I'm thinking of the dialogue, what's going to be going on on the page and, and so forth. So, you know, in Japan, I, I don't know, you know, I, you got Masashi Kishimoto who works on Naruto. You got Nobuhiro Watsuki who works on uh, Roni Kenshin. Uh, they do they do have the story in their head i'm not sure if they do a script but um they do have assistants who help with inking and doing the backgrounds but they're primarily the creators of the stories and they also do the art um whereas i don't have an assistant <laughs> at all i do everything myself i mean i do pencils inks uh scanning then going in and cleaning up everything and doing the colors or you know just um the gray uh because my book is black and white like a manga a traditional manga would be um so i go in there i just put in grays and everything covers are obviously colored and you know any artwork that might be inside some of that might be colored but yeah i do everything myself because it's a story that i'm familiar with i know where i'm going with it and the only assistance i've had was with my son he helped me with uh 13 pages on issue three um and that was that was cool, but I, I sometimes I feel kind of like trapped in when I'm working on a with somebody on the script because I don't have the I don't have the total control and creativity over that project. But that's with tooth and nail. I mean, if I work with somebody else, it's their story and their creation, and of course they're going to follow behind on what they're mapping out for me. Um, so yeah, it, it, as a creator, you know, specifically in Japan, they usually are the writer and and the artists but there are some that have writer a separate art writer than the artist as well uh but then you know you, like i said they'll come in with assistance to do you know backgrounds or inking and everything because they had to roll those out a lot faster than we have to do in america which is usually monthly usually you know uh maybe longer now i'm not sure but when i was reading comics it used, used to be monthly so i'm not sure how that rolls now i haven't bought too much american comics much i'm mostly studying uh manga right now i'm definitely getting some things right now that are bi-monthly or quarterly or as we have time to finish an issue because we're working on so many other things at the same time yeah uh you mean like your own or or stuff coming from oh no no <laughs> stuff that i'm buying at the store uh yeah oh, okay. my own is <laughs> plotted out and really needs to get finished writing because some people including uh patrick are probably sick of hearing me say that i'm working on it without having a <laughs> thing to show them <laughs> yeah i mean that happens sometimes i mean it, it, my as myself you know uh working on you know any comics i mean i've done stuff before in the past but you know now that i'm doing 100 myself the work i just sat down and i just said i'm gonna do this i think this can be something um 
and being influenced by you know manga and uh, even the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and uh, video games and whatnot. Um, I sat there and I said, this could be something, you know, because it was something that was just lingering around for a long time with Tooth and Nail. And I decided that I sat down, I had already done a five page preview of it like a couple years before. And I sat down and redrew those five pages and said, you know what, I'm going to go forward with this story. And it just blossomed as I kept going. So, yeah, sometimes you just got to you just got to do it. (laughs) And then it kind of just snowballs after that, I think. And just knowing that we can keep taking a look at this one single series and kind of see the evolution of it through, I don't even want to think about how many years it is, it's 1968 now. Um, mm-hmm. 47 years. Like 60 years almost? 47. Yeah, he said he was working on it for 47 years, I believe. That is ridiculous. Ridiculous! How could anybody <laughs> keep going for forty-seven years on the same story? Yep. Yep. Yeah, I mean, just some people who are just dedicated with that and they love what they're doing. I mean, that's the biggest part is having a passion of what you do. You know, he was started off doing start started off doing you know drawing comics, uh, comedy comics and cartoons, samurai manga, and you know, I think he was just doing that for other companies, but then he he came up with the idea of um, Gogo 13 and he started working on that and it kind of blossomed into what he had for those 47 years and um, you just kind of have to have fun with it you gotta just enjoy it and when you get that fan base I think that's one of the things that really keeps us motivated is the people who dedicate themselves to it you know that like what you're doing and so it's not just you on the ride you, you bring other people on the ride you know, it might be an empty car ride in the beginning, but then as people pass by and, and see what you're doing, if you got a really nice car, say, hey, can I take a ride in your car? And then they get to know who you are and how you do your process, and then they want to stay in the car with you and keep going until you get to that destination. Um, and I think that's what will happen with Saito-san, um, is that he just... Well, I think that just happens with every artist. I think we just create, and, you know, it's not just about the artist is about the people who are involved uh who take the ride with 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 the um with the artist we should probably mention too that gogo 13 is categorized as i'm gonna butcher this but probably not as bad as i think the sign-in manga which is marketed towards young adult men so if you're thinking that you're gonna maybe get this for your small child um no, don't no. do that. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely no Naruto. It's definitely not, you know, uh, Demon Slayer or anything like that. I mean, even those have their violence to it. But Goga Thirteen is definitely adult, young adult type book. Uh, just, I mean, from the opening, one one of the issues I think it was issue seven that I took a look at, um, or chapter seven. You know, he's looking out the window and it's a naked woman in his bed and then she like gets up and then he gets in a fight with the naked woman. <laughs> I, I was just like, wow. You know, he like beats up this naked woman and they start chasing him and then they corner him and uh, it goes to the next scene. And then, you know, he, he goes on a uh, mission for an assassination and 
you know, it's people's heads getting blo- not blown off, but you know, getting shots in the head and you know the gra- and graphic detail and and whatnot. So, uh, it definitely isn't for kids, and they don't have the stipulations that we have here in America when it comes to sex and violence. Um, you know, even with Dragon Ball, my friend even told me he was like the stuff that they have in Dragon Ball in in, in Japan. There's a lot that they cut when it comes to sexuality and and violence, um, and you know here in America, of course, a lot of that stuff is cut because it's going to go on TV, and you know maybe you'll get the uncut version on DVD or Blu-ray or whatever, but you know it's just it's not the same. They have a different mindset when it comes to those type of things. So, but it is it's it's interesting enough, even with those things cut they do grow here in America it, it, it gains a popularity uh, because of not just because of the violence but because of stories the characters and the worlds that they create uh, are very different uh, than we do and the funny thing is that they are inspired by American creators you know Astro Boy was created you know um, as an influence to Disney cartoons that's why they created the big eyes because Disney cartoons had the big eyes so that kind of like went down the trend of American, uh, I mean, American Japanese uh, manga and anime. Uh, and so that became their, their um, staple in, in their media with uh, comics and manga. So it kind of goes back and forth. We share each other's ideas and everything. And, you know, when we do things here in America that's like manga or anime based, you know, like Avatar, um, you know, we say that it's American take on anime, or what I'm doing is American take on Japanese culture or Teen Titan. So we borrow back and forth with each other, because like I said, GoGo13 is pulling heavily from the noir and the the 007 um, trends. And, you know, I think that's great. I think even though we're two different, totally different cultures, we can definitely share each other's creativity well we're gonna sit here and contemplate the circular nature of inspiration here while i drop some promos for a few other shows got it hey this is david from the piecing it together podcast a podcast about movies and the movies that inspire them for over four years each week a guest and i take a look at a new movie through the lens of what other movies we think were either an influence or connect in some other way it's a fun unique way to discuss films that leads to a great list of other movies to check out that either explore the same themes and ideas or maybe utilize similar filmmaking techniques Including special episodes in our side series that twist the format, we've done over 200 episodes, so there's bound to be one on a film you've been thinking about and want to dig deeper into. So check us out on all the major podcasting apps and at piecingpod.com. Hi, it's Luke from Luke Who's Talking, a podcast where I talk about what's happening in my life living in a small Australian city. Or are we a town? Hmm... It's a grouse old time. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn and iHeartRadio or just give Luke Who's Talking a Google. Those are some great shows to check out, but first let's finish up with this one. So Corey, let's get one thing out of the way real quick. How did you like the Golgo 13 top secret episode? Uh, The video game? uh, The NES game? Yeah, <laughs> it was interesting to say the least. Um, 
it's definitely a product of its time when it comes to the Nintendo uh, era because the controls and the the uh, the mechanics itself were very stiff and very uh, hard to like understand in the beginning because the game does not explain anything. It just kind of drops into that world and you just got to figure it out and you're going to die a lot <laughs> because of that. Um, particularly there were some scenes where I um, there were some scenarios where I was trying to like shoot bad guys that were coming on the screen and they would bend down and shoot but I can bend down but I couldn't bend down and shoot back at them so for a while I just kept trying to do the bend down thing and it didn't and I couldn't shoot them until they stood up and then I could shoot them but by then they had filled me full of holes or I was trying to jump over the bullets um and they were shooting so much in succession that I would keep getting hit. Uh, so <laughs> try to, going back to that whole old Nintendo way is kind of hard after you've been playing, you know, PlayStation, and Xbox, and you know, and everything like that. Um, you know, it's really difficult to go back to those type of games. Um, another thing I thought was I, another thing I thought was kind of cool was the cutscenes that they did. They did a very Ninja Gaiden esque. Um, uh, cutscenes where you know it kind of tells the story through these still shots and slightly animated uh, scenes and had the very strong noir feel to it. Uh, and the Ninja Guy I'm talking about is the Ninja Guy in NES era, which was kind of a big thing back then because we didn't get cutscenes that much back then in, in video games. We used to just go right to the game. Um, so that was cool. I thought that was great. Uh, like I said, great 007 vibe, very spy-based, uh, had a cool narrative. Um, the side-scroll, it goes from a side-scroller to a first-person shooter in certain sections while you're walking down the street or whatever, and uh, a, a gun comes out of the side of the screen and shoots at you, and then it goes right to this first-person perspective, and you're shooting um, you know, other spies and helicopters and jets with you're shooting down jets and helicopters with, with a handgun, by the way. <laughs> Which I thought was hilarious. Um, and then there were some sections where it, it was one section that went to you flying a helicopter. So it had this guy... Uh, uh, I was getting ready to say Ninja Gaiden again, but it's not... Uh, like R-type um, Gradius type side-scrolling. So you're like going on the side and you're shooting you know, uh, airplanes and everything coming by. And then you eventually get to this part where it goes back to the first person and you're getting ready to shoot a tower, um, shoot a sniper in the tower. That part was really confusing because like, I'm trying to figure out, cause it just goes to that scene. It doesn't like tell you what's gonna happen. It just kind of goes to that scene and you're like trying to move the, the cursor around to shoot something and it wasn't moving. And so I eventually got it somehow to move and then goes down you know, I push the button or whatever, and then it goes to you uh, shooting a sniper. Uh, so the controls were kind of wonky. Uh, you can't really skip cutscenes. Uh, not cutscenes, but more like dialogue scenes, uh, which is kind of uh, annoying because you'll keep dying, 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 and you get back to those scenes and you got to hear them, you know, not hear them, but see the text score. You got to read that several times over and over again. Um, so yeah, I think I think if that type of game was remade today with better, you know, aesthetics to it and 
uh, better graphics. I think it could actually work because it has some good idea. Um, but because of the limitations of the Nintendo, they can only go so far with it. But it did feel and look a lot like the manga. Except for the side-scrolling parts. Uh, I thought that it was very generic with those parts, but when it goes to the cutscenes or goes to the dialogue scenes, it looks very like Gogo 13, the manga, which I thought was very cool. So that a lot of games that I've seen here that are based on manga, especially more so than Western comics, I feel like this one does a really good job of letting you know what's going on in the story as opposed to just yeah. plopping you in there and hoping you figure it out mm -hmm. like it, it obviously doesn't go in there and tell you everything over the entire 50 some odd years of Golgo 13 <laughs> but you don't need to know that for this story because in the end I mean a spy story is a spy story you're going through and doing spy work and assassinating people and yeah all that extra background stuff is cool but you don't need to know it to understand what's going on in the game yeah story wise I would say it, it, it kind of it, that, that's one of the parts I really like is that the story they were really doing a good job of the narrative uh, gameplay wise not so much uh, I just felt like they kind of I think I've gotten so spoiled with 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 the games of today because back then, you know, Nintendo games didn't really explain anything to you. They just put you in there and you just had to push a button to figure out what does what. Um, but story-wise, narrative-wise, I think they nailed that. Um, I don't know if Saito-san had any touch on um, creating this game at all. Um, but like I said, they took what GoGo13 felt like in the manga and made it feel like in the game and that's 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 a top thing because especially at that time you know i've played games that's based on you know <laughs> certain genres or certain comic book stuff and it's like this is terrible this doesn't feel like <laughs> you know it, uh, for instance the x-men game that came on the nes which was a piece of garbage <laughs> was terrible <laughs> it didn't feel like x-men that is a much nicer description than it deserves <laughs> yeah, that, that game is garbage and I really tried I really tried to get into the game because I'm a huge X-Men fan and it was like the only thing we had as a video game before you know the arcade games and Super Nintendo and all that came out so I was really trying to force myself to enjoy that game and it was just like this is not enjoyable at all by no means so I, it's, I give kudos to the to the developers of Google 13 because at least it felt like Google 13. You know, it felt like a spy game. You know, it didn't just feel like them cobbled something together and put in the face of Google 13 and and it really isn't. It just what it wasn't the only thing I would say is probably the generic part was is the side scrolling part. But um as for the spy game and the narrative, I think they this game was developed and published by Vic Tokai. As far as I can tell, they did not have any hand at all in working on the manga itself. But they must have had 
some people who were fans of the manga because of all the work that obviously went into telling us what's going on with stuff. It also had some help with planning and graphics by Seibu Lease. There's going to be links in the show notes so you can see how horrible my pronunciation is. <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying Saito-san for the uh, for the creator because uh, I didn't really practice saying his first name, but uh, yeah, I, I can totally understand that. But yeah, I I, it, I think it would even been better if the creators of you know uh, of GoGo Thirteen had more of their hands in development of the game because they could probably implement more into it. Uh, but gameplay wise, you know, it's going to be left up to the developers who work on the mechanics for the game, which, which aren't horrible, but you know, at that eight, at that time period, it didn't work a hundred percent for me, but narrative why I thought it was cool. And this is early in their game development lifespan. We haven't looked at anything that they've done for the show. Before this, they had made Bump and Jump, and that is basically it for things that came out over here in North America. They did go on to do some other games, including a sequel to this one, which we will be looking at in another episode, Clash at Demon Head, Decap Attack, a few other things that I'm sure we'll get to later in other episodes as well. Yeah, it's definitely not an easy game either. <laughs> this is another thing that, that I want to throw in. It was hard. <laughs> Even from the NES standpoint of still kind of having that arcade mindset and that rental mindset, like you don't want people to be able to beat your game too easily because then <laughs> they won't buy it. They'll just give it to their friend and you don't want them to be able to rent it and beat the whole thing. Because right. then why would they go buy it themselves? But yeah, that's just true. the that's splitting true. of the play styles here, I think, was a really good move. Although I'm with you in that none of them by themselves, I think, could have carried the game. I think a lot of that is because they went and put all those different styles together. And I'm certain they could have made a better just side-scrolling game or just a better first-person shooter type game if they went and focused on making that the entire time. But I really like the variety here. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I thought the variety, because as I was playing it and it went to the first-person perspective, I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. That was, you know, kind of different for that time period and everything. Uh, and then went to the the, the side-scrolling uh, helicopter mode, and I was like, "Oh wow, they even got that." It kind of reminded me a little bit of uh, I don't know if you played Near Automata before uh, on the um, I think it was on PlayStation on the Xbox, and now it just came to the Switch, where that game kind of flips through different genres. Um, like it starts off as a shooter type, like Ikaruga, and then goes into you know hack slash with um, like. You know, Devil May Cry or, or Bayonetta, um, and then goes back to the sort of side-scrolling shooter thing. And 
I think that's what makes that game very unique uh, because it doesn't just do it one way. Um, and it's sort of, I don't think it has any vehicle section. Well, besides the, the side-scrolling ship thing. But that just felt like a, a bullet hell shooter anyway. But um, doing this in a Nintendo era, I think it was kind of cool that they tried to do these different varieties of the game. And, you know, it felt kind of fresh uh for that era, you know, if I had played it during that era, I would kind of been like, oh, cool. Uh, and then back then, you know, we stuck with games even though they beat the crap out of us, you know. Um, you know, and unless it was just impossible to play. But I think I would have stuck with GoGo 13 back then because I had more patience. <laughs> now I don't have the patience. I mean, I died like at least 25 times and it actually counts each time that you die. So I was like, oh, I know how many times I died. So. I don't know if I want to get up to 50, so I got to like 25, 27. I was just like, okay, I'm done. I can't, I can't sit here and play, play through this far over and over and over and over again. But like I said, I think back then we had a lot more patience, and now that we're older, we're kind of like, and we're kind of spoiled with the current, you know, uh, gaming mechanics. Because uh, even, you know, playing the Souls games and from software games, I'm a huge fan of those games, even though they're hard. I still would not compare them to the difficulty of the old NES games because those games were unforgiving. You know, if you died, it's back to the beginning for you. And actually, GoGo 13 was very generous too because there were checkpoints at some point. Uh, you have to read the same dialogue over a million times, but at least it didn't start you from the very beginning because I'll get a game over screen, go to the begin, go back to the the start select screen. And then go back to where I left off uh, if I got to one of those train stations. So that was kind of cool too. That was another thing that kind of like pushes that era uh, with the checkpoint and everything. So yeah, I, I would I would say it was definitely a very difficult game. I think back then I might have more patience for it, but not now. That aspect of being spoiled with modern games is a lot of why I try to do these games roughly chronologically because we're never going to be able to get that completely out of our head but at least if i'm going roughly chronologically i am not sitting there thinking about arkham asylum as i look at the nes batman game <laughs> oh man another one another classic <laughs> never beat that game though i got to the joker died went all the way back and i was like i'm done i can't do this anymore <laughs> This is way too much. And I've beaten some hard games back then, but that was one that just really pissed me off. Uh, uh, the Batman game of, of, of the Nintendo era. But I did get to the end. I, I got all the way to, up to the tower, which was a pain. Got to the Joker. He had the big gun, and he's running back around for the screen. He shot me a couple of times. I went up there a couple more times, and I just got, I got so frustrated I was done. So, yeah, it's definitely no Arkham Silent compared to what it is now. You know, we die in that and it kind of gives you a really nice checkpoint to go back to what you did. But it didn't have that back then. I've seen a lot of people in some YouTube videos I was watching say that you have unlimited continues in this game. Not exactly true because you have 52 of them. Although for the patience level for a lot of people that is probably about unlimited yeah 52 I mean 
I didn't even know it was a counter 52. I, I thought you could just keep continuing that same, those, those same errors, areas over and over again. Um, like I said, I got to like maybe 27 and I was just kind of done at that moment. Um, but I mean, 52, that's still a lot continue, considering, you know, usually back then you, you get three continues in a lot of NES and Super NES games. Uh, so that was definitely, you know, very friendly to the gamers back then compared to the other games. But the game was so hard, you know, even, you know, trying to figure out the mechanics and everything like that. And by then you lost at least about 10 lives before you figure out how. And then they, they put you into another scenario, you know, with the first person view and sometimes you're getting shot off screen and and so forth you know jumping back and forth between, between those things you kind of got to get used to those variety of different play play styles and i don't even know how far if, if there is changes to anything else later in the game because i didn't even get that far in so who knows it might have had another mechanic that i would have to get used to and use and lose more lives <laughs> the only other mechanic i saw was that they had some underwater levels which oh, I mean, it's an NES game. Of course, there's an underwater level, <laughs> and they have some of the worst water water levels back then. <laughs> yes, Ninja this Turtles. was definitely more Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles <laughs> underwater and less Mario underwater. Right, right. Mario's was tolerable, but that Ninja Turtle one, I I beat that game when I was a kid. I could, you know, I I can raise my hand and say I did it. Um, uh, but that. Is definitely a memorable torture <laughs> of, of that time period. Overall, what do you think this game really gets right about the manga version of Golgo Thirteen? Uh, definitely the the look and feel, um, the narrative, the visual storytelling. Um, and it, it, it's just kind of cool, once again, like, you know, that they try to play on these different aspects of being a spy and walking past people who give you little hints and some of you didn't know who was a spy. That was another thing. I didn't even think about that part. Uh, you know, you'll walk through the street and there's some people you can kind of like talk to and they'll give you little hints where there's some of them that look because all the people that walk down the street pretty much look the same. And so when you walk into certain people, you'll get hit like a, a you know, a uh, damage. And you were like, oh, that's an enemy, <laughs> you know, and that kind of plays into the spy thing, obviously. So I think they nailed that. When it comes to the spy and the narrative stuff, I think they really did a good job of conveying that into an NES title. That's what I really, I thought was really cool. Getting the giant cast of characters, the look of everything, as much as you can on an NES game anyway, getting just the whole feel of a spy story going. Honestly, I even want to say the level of violence in here because that should not have been in a North American Nintendo release at all. And mm. somehow they slipped it in. Yeah, was that an early Nintendo title, or was it, like, later in the life cycle? This was 1988. Uh, in okay, Japan, so it was, it was March. Over here in North America, it was September. 
Okay. So that's pretty early because I think what the Nintendo came out like '89. I mean, not '89, obviously not '89. Uh, early late '80s. '85 or '86, depending on if you want to count the super selected release test market stuff. Okay. So it was, it was probably later into the life cycle. So maybe, I mean, at that time, you know, even with the level of violence, because there was always like games you could shoot people or, you know, slash with a sword or something like that. Um, maybe in that later life cycle, because it was hit more closer to the 90s, they got a little lax with the violence. Um, you know, it was definitely no Mortal Kombat, you know, on NES where it was just sweat coming out, whereas the Genesis had the blood. Um, but it did still have a little bit, you know, with, you know, with the end of that life cycle of the NES, maybe they got a little bit lax with the violence. I mean, it's definitely no nudity, but, uh, you know, you playing a spy, you shooting people on the street, you know, and you using a sniper rifle and whatnot. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot of games back there we played with that type of mechanic, but we didn't think about those type of things. We just kind of played the game. I mean, we had a light gun to shoot ducks, you know, <laughs> and, and everything like that. So, yeah, I don't I don't think it was because it was so virtual and it was it didn't look real. Uh, maybe that's why it kind of passed. There might not be actual nudity, but there is silhouetted implied nudity and sexual activity to get your health bar back up. Oh, really? Okay. I didn't know that. I didn't get that far in the game. Too bad. <laughs> yeah, like right after you're in the helicopter and shoot the guy in the head. Yeah. Go up in a hotel room real quick. It's a cutscene, so it's not even like Grand Theft Auto levels of having to actually like press buttons and quick time event your way through it. It's just, yeah. oh, hey, look, there's silhouettes up in a hotel room. They're not going to show anything, but we all know what's going on in there. Uh, I didn't catch that. Yeah, I must have not really pay attention to that part. What do you think this game really gets wrong looking at the manga? I mean, I would have liked that the side scroll scrolling section is like would have looked more like the actual characters in the manga because they're very they're very like generic as I mentioned before. Um, Cutscenes and dialogue scenes look, you know, obviously right ripped from the manga, but when it came to gameplay, it didn't have it didn't look the shapes of the character and you know. Uh, and everything. I mean, the city so far, so forth looked okay, but the actual characters were very generic looking. So I, I don't think they did a good job modeling that because if I would have jumped into just playing it without knowing what it was, I wouldn't have known it was a GoGo 13 game based on that. Um, you know, the title screen, the dialogue scenes, and and the little cutscenes that they had obviously looked more like GoGo 13. But if I were just sit down and play it without knowing what it was before I saw all those other scenes, I would not have known it was Cold 13. I thought it was just some generic shooter. A side-scrolling shooter. Yeah, it's hard for me to 
say the graphics need to be better and have that be something they get wrong because it is an NES game. Yeah. But a lot of these characters that come out and talk to you are, hey, let's palette swap something and call it a new character. Right. And, I mean, I, I realize it, like when you can fit multiple games and an emulator on a three and a half inch floppy disk. Yeah. Don't ask me how I know that because we all know how <laughs> I know that. <laughs> you got to save space somehow. Yeah. And, you know, if you could have your little character that comes up in the game once or twice just to tell you information, like, you don't really need to do a completely new design for that. That's fine. Yeah. And I realize in 70 years of manga history, you're going to have characters that look the same. You're probably going to recycle some character models a few times for people yeah. that don't interact at all and doesn't really matter. And in all reality, there are people in the world in real life who just look a lot alike. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's realistic enough. But the fact that I'm having to say that is what's wrong, <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, not not so bad. Uh like I said, you know, I it, it kind of um, like I said, it, it it narrative wise, I think they nailed it overall narrative and some of the mechanics, like you know, the sniper section and uh, you know, it 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 definitely felt like a spy game, um, but graphically, you know, you look at bat the Batman game on the NES, you knew that was Batman. It looked like Batman, even though he was all purple. You know, he looked like Batman. You know, there's section some games that you play as Spider-Man or Wolverine. They had the color palette to kind of look like it, and then some of the little details, you know, on on the um, sprites that kind of worked make it look like that. Whereas this didn't really have that to me. Uh, I would have never known it was Google 13. Did you hand somebody this game? as a bit of a primer course if you knew they wanted to get into Golgo 13. Um if they were familiar with the NES era, yes. If they were not, I would say no. Um because the mechanics would throw people off. Um and you know if somebody said, oh I want to play a really good spy game you know, on the NES, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say Go Go 13, I would go Metal Gear or something like that. Um, so yes and no, you know, it, it, for people who are not familiar with it, I would definitely not start there. I would start with Metal Gear, but with people who are familiar with the NES era and the mechanics and how things play back then, I would say, yeah, go ahead, try it out. Yeah, this is a tough one because you know, I'm not going to hand a 10-year-old today this game. There certainly are NES games that I would hand some a small kid these days. Oh, knowing yeah. that they're yeah. all PS4, PS5, this is not one of them by yeah. any stretch of the imagination. But, I mean, you get somebody... I mean, even if they're not used to the NES from lately stuff but they're roughly our age-ish because I'm assuming we're close enough age-wise for me to be able to lump us together here. You know, like... Yeah, yeah, I'm, 
Yeah, I, I, I think fine. we have that same. Yeah, we're all totally fine. <laughs> so yeah, I would I would say you know if I were to give it to a ten year old now, you know, give a game, to, uh, NES game of that era, it would probably be Mario. It would probably be, uh, you know, Excite Bike, or you know, uh, Duck Hunt and stuff like that. But it, it Kung Fu or whatever. But I wouldn't say. Um, Definitely not Google 13. And finally, I have the question that I ask everybody who comes on the show. Who's your favorite Muppet? <laughs> My favorite Muppet? That is quite a question. Oh, man. Um, I'll probably say Fozzie Bear. How much did Patrick pay you to say that? Is that his favorite? It is. <laughs> no, he didn't tell me that at all. No, I would have to go. I've never really thought about it, but if I were to go with one, I would definitely say Fozzie is one of my favorites because he's just a goofball. I like his design. Um, and it's just more of a fun character, you know, than, you know, Miss Piggy's a jerk. <laughs> Kermit's kind of depressed. Um, I like Animal too. Animal's just a wild, wild guy. But I would, I would probably, if I were to nail it down, I would probably say Fozzie. Well, Corey, it has been great talking to you about all of this. If people want to hear more from you, where else can they find you around the internet? Uh, you can go to my website at birdseyeviewcomic.com. Um, bird is spelled B-Y-R-D. Um, that's where I sell my comics, now t-shirts of Tooth and Nail. Um, and then I'm also on Facebook at Tooth and Nail Comic. I'm on Instagram at Bird's Eye View Official. And on Twitter at um, Bird's Eye 76. And TikTok as well, which is Bird's Eye View Comics. And thank you for having me. Hey, I love getting new people on the show, different perspectives of things, getting to talk to cool people about their stuff. And like always, we will have links to all that stuff down in the show notes because clicking links is so much easier than trying to remember how to spell things. <laughs> That's true. As always, if you want to hear more from me, you can head on over to playcomics.com, which has been recently redesigned after I thought that my theme broke things, but it turns out it didn't, but I had already redesigned it. So yeah, I'm going to keep it because I don't want to undo that. So go check it out. I think it's kind of pretty. This show is written, produced, edited, you know, all that fun stuff by me with the art put together by me because really I'm just kind of grabbing covers and putting them together in a compilation thing it's not that hard but if i wanted good art one place i would go is definitely cory bird you know like the guy you just heard me talking to for like 45 minutes cory makes good art and i'm going to get cory art on my wall i've already talked to him about this so it's not a surprise but yes it's going to happen and it can happen for you too just don't delay me getting mine because I'm selfish and I want it for me. If you want to help support the show, you can be like Odo Lit Class or Dan McMahon or Carl Antonovitz and you know give me money because hosting costs money and stuff like that. 
but you can also just share the show with your friends because listeners are important. You know, I'm as narcissistic person at heart. All podcasters are. Just come and tell me that you think the show is great and it'll make my entire week and I'll probably go around bragging about it to people who don't care. And I won't care that they don't care. If you want to hear some other wonderfully geeky shows, you can head on over to the Gunna Geek Network at GunnaGeek.com where you can learn all about the connection of mental health stuff and comic characters with capes on the couch. You can hear about the greater Marvel Universe with Legends of S.H.I.E.L.D., which lets me talk sometimes. Or you can just learn how to make your podcast better with the very on-the-nose named Better Podcasting. I can't really say much, though. Play Comics is kind of on the nose itself. If you like the music that I'm really talking on top of right now, head on over to soundcloud.com slash best-day to check out Best Day's music. But most of all, just grab a game, grab a stack of comics, and go find yourself a new favorite character. <laughs> <laughs>